If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be looking at that this morning as we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul begins by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the grace, excuse me, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you'd open our understanding now and give us grace. And we pray that you would speak to us from your word by your spirit this day and cause us to be not forgetful hearers, but by your grace, effectual doers, Lord. So bring it about to your glory, Lord, in every aspect. And and that which you desire to see in us, we pray you would bring forth. Give us understanding in your word and help us to remember it. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Chapter 3 doesn't take a whole bit, a lot of exegetical expertise to find out that it follows chapter 2. Okay? That's not today's deep thought. Okay? Um, Chapter 2, though, we, we read, spent some time in, and we saw there that Uh, Those great truths that are set forth of salvation being not by works that we have done, but according to his grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Everyone knows that one, I think, or pretty much does. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So Paul establishes this truth. In chapter 1, he established the fact that God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation. He didn't save us because we did something, but because he had an eternal plan and purpose for his people. The Bible is pretty clear. Jesus, in John 17, prayed for all those that the Father had given to him in eternity past. So this great body of God's elect is in the world. They are not saved till they hear the gospel and believe God has to regenerate them. So we can't take the doctrine of election and use that as an excuse not to evangelize or to witness because if God has chosen someone, he will, in his providence in time, cause that the word goes forth. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he didn't say, well, you were elect, so no matter what would have happened, you would have been fine. He said, you were elect, and therefore you heard the word, but you were dead in trespasses and sins before God saved you. I said, we were children of wrath, even as the others. And God had mercy upon us. Uh, He starts off in the first three verses of chapter 2 saying that. And then uh, he lets us know that it's by his mercy and that we're examples of his grace and kindness. uh, That what Jesus did belongs to us. Christ represented us. It's proper to say, legally, Jesus was you. So when he lived the life of righteousness, that righteousness of Jesus Christ 
is now given to you, imputed to you legally, placed to your account. That's why you can appear before God. And his sufferings on the cross, because he as an eternal person suffered in his humanity and basically paid the price that is the equivalent of all of us going to hell for eternity. That's why the uh, intensity and the depth of his sufferings are beyond scale. It says that in Hebrews that he, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. There's an aspect of eternity, and his sufferings were so far beyond anything we can imagine. But it was enough to pay the price to God's offended justice that we had offended, so that the debt that we owed, which was that we have forfeited our life and deserve to be cast into hell for eternity, and to suffer there consciously under God's anger and wrath against us because of our wickedness, Jesus' sufferings matched that. Whatever you think about, well, how can you even measure that? You can't. It's eternal. How can you measure what Jesus did on the cross for you? You can't. It's eternal. So he paid, and, and he's the only person in the universe that could do that. It took someone who was both God and man to come in time, and Jesus took a human nature and then died on the cross. Basic gospel truths, but really important for us to understand. Your Savior loves you, and he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. So part of God's eternal purpose and plan has always been that you would be redeemed by Christ. Jesus stood for you in the counsel of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit and covenanted. That's why we're told grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before eternal ages, it says in, I believe, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so we have this. So Paul then begins to talk at the uh, second half of chapter 2. We've got a reason why we're going back to chapter 2 is because he starts 3 and says, For this reason I, Paul, etc. Because of what the truths he just set forth. So we're looking at those truths right now. That's why we're going over this. So he says, Therefore remember, this is verse 11, that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then he tells them, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He lets them know it's not because you're so special. In one sense, yes, God set his love on you, but it wasn't because of your works. It was because of his love. As we've often said, the thing that drew God's mercy out to you was in God, not in you. <laughs> okay, God is a merciful God because of who he is. And so he determined to save you, to be an example of his grace. And you who were once were far off, he's speaking to the Gentiles in Ephesus, that is the non-Jews, you know, in case you're not sure, some of the young people might not know this, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Okay, the word Gentile is just a kind of a fancy word that means of the nations. The, the ethnoi is in the Greek. That's that's the term that's used. Okay, or sometimes you hear the term goyim. Sometimes you hear Jewish people refer to the goyim. That just means Gentiles. That's all. Or the, he's a goy. They'll say meaning he's he's a Gentile or he's a goyim of the Gentiles. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. That's what Paul's writing to you here. He's saying. You Ephesians were not brought up in the Jewish faith. You're not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You weren't brought up in Israel. You weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel, etc. You were strangers from the covenants. You had no claim on God uh, historically or ethnically. Uh, and 
you are without hope and without God. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, those of you who have become saved, those who are believing in him, those who have had that work of grace done in you by the Holy Spirit, by grace alone, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. And then this is where you have to understand what he's talking about to understand these verses. For he is our peace who has made both one. What's the both? Jews and Gentiles, one new people in the church, that is the body of Christ, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, the ordinances, the civil and ceremonial laws that existed in Israel, and those laws were given to Israel for the specific purpose of separating them unto God from the nations. They were a unique people. God did that because they were the people through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was going to come, and so God separated them from the nation so that they would be preserved, delivered them from idolatry and wickedness, and dealt with them in a very special way because they were the ones through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can follow the covenant line down through uh, the uh, Old Testament period. You have then the tribe of Judah, and then you have the house of David. The prime, we're kind of looking at that on Tuesday nights at our Bible study. If you'd like to come for that, we're in Second Samuel. Uh, but through the house of David, the promise was that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne forever. And be very clear, you know, that that would be the Messiah. And in the Psalms, there's plenty of references to the Lord's Messiah coming and all those promises and that covenant line narrowed down. So when you come to the New Testament, you read of Joseph's genealogy that's uh, generally cited. In, you know, that's the one that's understood to be cited in Luke chapter 3 or Mary's genealogy in, in Matthew uh, I may have that backwards, but anyway, Joseph and Mary's genealogies are given in those two sections in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3, uh, and, and they're, they're different because one is tracing his adopted father, Joseph. Joseph is not his natural father. Jesus was conceived miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he could enter humanity in a unique way and not be a direct descendant from Adam, so he had no original sin, but he was still a true man. They're both descended from King David is the point. And so Jesus is the seed of David. We saw that last week uh, in uh, Romans. It says that Christ is declared to be the Son of God. Uh, he's of the seed of David, but uh, declared to be the Son of God uh, by the Holy Spirit and through the resurrection in Romans chapter 1. So Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, and he says, For great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, and in Romans 9:10, he speaks of Christ, who is the eternal God, coming and becoming a man and to, to save us. So Christ came, and in his body, when he suffered for us, he fulfilled all righteousness. And the purpose of the separation of Jews from Gentiles was then fulfilled. And there was no need for the Gentiles then to submit to circumcision. We see this all through the book of Acts with Cornelius and others, the Council of Jerusalem, the men in Acts 15, they went up to Antioch and told them, unless you're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they had a council in Jerusalem, and the apostles came back and said, no, that's not the message. The Gentiles are not obligated to become Jews through the ceremonies and rituals. So he's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So Christ took that away, fulfilled, because the, all the sacrificial ceremonies all pointed to his finished work. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, we know he said, John tells us, he cried out, it is finished. But the gospel writers tell us something else happened that day. There was an earthquake. But if you're familiar with the events, if you've read the gospel accounts, you know that it's recorded that the veil of the temple, that is the veil which was to separate us from the very presence of God, we couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, which was symbolic of entering into God's saving presence, except through the high priest once a year, and he'd go in and sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat. That veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, it was torn, the gospel writer tells us, from the top down to the bottom. It was a really thick, heavy, we'd say more like a carpet. Uh, according to the mission and others, it would take, I think they said something like, it took uh, 400 women a year to weave a new uh, veil. That's how heavy it was and uh, the ornate uh, ornateness of it. It was a pretty massive thing. And so that was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, some have said that Jews went back and sewed it up and continued offering sacrifices. I've never read anything historically that said they sewed it up, but they did replace it. Um, that's clear because they continued doing that. I don't think they continued it with a ripped uh, veil. And they did replace it every you know decade or so. And so that was taken away when Christ died, the veil of the temple. And it was torn from top to bottom because God let us know this isn't man doing this. God himself declared when Jesus yielded up his spirit, when he died, having shed his blood and suffered in our place, it was paid for. Jesus said, it is finished. He died. There was an earthquake. The veil of the temple was ripped in two. God saying, you, you can come now through the Messiah. And those other sacrifices were done away with. It's sad because sometimes in um, Daniel chapter 9, when it says he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to cease, some study Bible say, well, that's the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. If you read it in context, it's talking about the Messiah. Jesus, after three and a half years in the midst of the week, three and a half years of public ministry, he caused sacrifice and oblation to cease. And then it says, and because of the overspreading of abominations, plural, one shall come who shall make desolate. And historically that's been understood to refer to the fact that the unbelieving Jews did continue to offer blood sacrifices at that point in opposition to the Messiah's finished work. And because of the abominations, because Isaiah had spoken in Isaiah 65, I believe it is, that the time would come whoever offered a lamb would be as if he slew a dog or offered swine's blood. And God says, even as they have chosen their abominations, and then Daniel referred to the fact that uh, because of the overspreading of abominations, one will come who will make desolate. And that's generally been understood to be the Romans that came in 70 AD and destroyed the temple. That old way of worshiping was done away with completely so that they couldn't continue on because it was being done in opposition. But when Paul wrote this to the Ephesians, the temple still stood. It hadn't yet been destroyed. It's generally understood Ephesians was probably written in the 60s in the first century, and the temple was destroyed uh, in 70 AD. So it was still standing, but Paul's letting them know, no, any Christian knows, if you've read the Gospels, the veil was torn in two. Jesus says, it is finished. So he said, he is the one, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that would be the civil and ceremonial rituals, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So you have the Jews, and then you had the Gentiles, but now he says, no, now there's one new man, because in Christ Jesus, Paul says, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but a new creation. That's uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Paul talks about that. So, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. That is, he took put to death the enmity between God and us because of our sins. But also now there should be no uh, separation between Jews and Gentiles or any other races because in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, if you want to turn there real quick, we'll take a look at that and get an idea of how broad is the scope of Christ's redemption. In um, Revelation chapter 5, we see that as the elders and as they fall before the Lord in verse 8 in worship, it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, that is the Lamb, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, because Revelation shows a lot of things in symbols. But this is a praise. No symbolism here. And they sang a new song saying... They're singing to Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice that. God has his people in every tribe, tongue, meaning language group, people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. That doesn't mean we're going to take over the government. It means the saints do. If you remember right before that, uh, they had those the, the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints rule the world by their prayers, beloved. The sooner we learn that, the more we'll see things change. Okay? God wants you to be involved in your government, and it's okay to be a good citizen and, and all those types of things. But you want to see things change, you need to pray. The saints rule the world. That's what we're told right here. But note who, the, who that uh, group is. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So nobody can look at any group of people and say, oh, well, God doesn't have any of his elect among those people. You know, it's often used to justify racism and stuff on both sides, you know. Um, and I've heard people talk like that, and they need to be told to be quiet and point that verse out to them. But Paul is saying here the first thing it is that God reconciled the Jews and the Gentiles by reconciling the Gentiles to God through the blood of Christ. So he tells them, <coughs> uh, having done that, he, uh, in verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, that's the church, through the cross. Note that. It's not through the ceremonies. It's not through circumcision. It's not through baptism. It's not through church membership. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ that we're reconciled to God, thereby putting to death the enmity. The animosity that existed should be dead. It shouldn't be in a Christian's heart. It's not there before God. God destroyed it when his wrath was fully poured out on Christ. God's anger against our sins has been satisfied by the death of his son. And he came and preached peace to you. Now he came, that is through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and prophets and evangelists and others and Christians as the gospel spread. And he came and preached peace. Note, to you who were afar off and to those who were near, both Jews and Gentiles. He preached what? Peace. He says in Romans chapter 5, having been justified therefore by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. That's a present tense possession. 
For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So he's saying in the church, and he's not here talking about just ethnic Jews or ethnic Gentiles. He's talking about believers from among the Jews and the, from among the Gentiles. Now, therefore, he tells them, the Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which I believe is a reference to the gospel of the, in the scriptures, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together. Remember I brought out last week the word fitted together there in the Greek. It has the word harmonious in, in it. It's the, the root meaning being harmoniously fitted together. So there shouldn't be a lot of strife and dissension and anger and you know ill will and grumbling in the church against each other. We're to be harmoniously fitted together for what? We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. There's the real temple of the Lord. Uh, that word is naos there, meaning the sanctuary. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, so Paul said all that, and then we could briefly look at these, these opening verses of chapter 3. For this reason, that is because there's no longer this division between Jews and Gentiles. We're members of Christ and Christians in his church. God has called his people by a new name. And when it says in Acts that the, the disciples were first called Christians uh, in Antioch, that, that, that word for called there, if you look it up in the strongest concordance, you find it means divinely called. Christian, the term Christian was not a term of derision put on them by their enemies. It's a name God gave to them. They're the ones who belong to Christ. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Paul saying, I'm in prison right now because I angered the unbelieving Jews, because I preached to the Gentiles. They didn't like that. I was bringing the Gentiles into the church, telling them, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. Because of that, they raised persecution, plotted against my life. And if you know the book of Acts, the last chapters of it, you know, Paul ended up being sent to Rome as a prisoner because he'd appealed to Caesar because he knew they were going to kill him if he went to Jerusalem. They'd already set up an ambush. So they got him out of there, and uh, he was now in Rome as a prisoner writing to the Ephesians. He said, I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles. It's, it's because of the gospel that I'm, I'm in chains. But he says, if indeed you have heard the dispensation of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Dispensation means a manner of dispensing. You've heard of the uh, job, you might say, that was given to me to dispense the word. You've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God that Paul was called to preach. That's what he's talking about. Uh, which was given to me for you. Paul says, God called me to preach to the Gentiles. And he says, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. As I have briefly written already, that is in the first two chapters, uh, this mystery, Paul talks about it in Galatians in chapter uh, 1, if you want to turn back a little bit, take a quick look at that. In Galatians chapter 1, this is a very interesting part of, or aspect of Paul's ministry in the book of Galatians. Eventually I'll get there. Chapter 1, Paul says uh, in verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he said, I received the Gospels, that is the details of the life and ministry and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
directly from God. Paul was an apostle, like as the prophets of old. God uh, gave to them direct knowledge of things. And so Paul said, I received it by revelation. In chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul talks about, he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation as God had directed them to do this. It was the time before the canon of Scripture was complete and God spoke directly to prophets and apostles. And so he says, I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul says, I told them what I'd been preaching. And, and here we see Paul had received revelation from God, but he had it double-checked with the men who had been with Jesus to make sure that he hadn't left out any details or hadn't misunderstood something. He's not doubting God's revelation. He just doubts Paul a little bit. So he says, I talked to them, and privately I told them what I've been preaching. And then he says, um, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So when he told them, the other apostles that were there said, no, we don't preach circumcision, we preach Christ. You don't have to submit to the Old Testament uh, you know, mosaic ceremonies, or in that case, the Abrahamic ceremonies. You don't have, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Christ didn't command that. In the Great Commission, he said, go you into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now some say, oh, so we have, now we have to be baptized to be saved? No, you're missing the point if you think that. Ceremonies, whether circumcision or baptism, none, that doesn't save you. Those are things that identify you as belonging to Christ. But that's not, they're not, uh, you know, going to save you if you're baptized or not baptized. That's the whole point of saying you're not saved by ceremonies. But nevertheless, circumcision was valid in the Old Testament and important. Baptism is valid and important today. But it's not a saving ordinance. Faith in Jesus Christ, true repentance and faith, is saving. Christ is the Savior. But he says, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Many believe this is what's being spoken of in, in, that happened in Acts 15, where men came up and started preaching circumcision and saying you have to keep the law of Moses. Paul and the others we would say today, got in their faces and said that is not the message that Christ gave us. That's why they eventually went down to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. And so Paul is here saying, if you jump down to verse 9, he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And then later now, in the second half of Galatians 2, when he rebuked Peter, because Peter was in the church uh, eating with the Gentiles, and then men came up uh, in Antioch, men came up from James in Jerusalem who were of the party of the circumcision, that is, they were ethnic Jews background, and Peter quit eating with the Gentiles. He didn't want to offend these guys from Jerusalem, so he separated from the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. And Paul said he rebuked him for it. And he said, do you not understand what you're doing? Uh, You're sending a message to these Gentiles that they're second-class citizens. What are you doing, Peter? 
Peter took the admonition. In 2 Peter, Paul commends Paul, Peter commends Paul's writings as scripture. Peter wasn't bitter. You know, rebuke a wise man and he'll love you, it says. So, uh, so this was the big issue in the early church. Paul received the gospel by revelation, and it was certified by the other apostles. Even we have Peter's words in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, commending Paul's writings. So there was no division among them. Peter approved of what Paul said, and Peter called Paul's writings scripture. Talks about those who are unlearned and unstable twist things there as they do the other scriptures, he said also. So Peter recognized Paul's writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, back in Ephesians 3, just wrapped this up. He says uh, that by revelation I received this. In verse 5 says, that in other ages, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That means as Gentiles brought into the church without submission to the Mosaic ceremonies, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So Paul says the mystery now is this, that we don't have to go out and preach ceremonies. We don't have to go out and say, oh, you have to be circumcised. We don't have to go out and say, oh, if you want to go to heaven, you need to be baptized. It's not ceremonial compliance. We preach Jesus Christ as he's revealed in Scripture. Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, uh, stand fast in the liberty by which you've been set free in Christ and don't be again entangled in a yoke of bondage. That's Galatians chapter 5. Note that. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Paul warned about the Judaizers, as we call them, because they, they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. Paul said they just do that so they can... Glory in your flesh. That's all that they're trying to do. In uh, To see Paul's attitude, you might say, in uh, chapter 6 of Galatians, we'll go there to end, Paul says, you see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Many believe Paul had bad eyesight, possibly because the scales that were on his eyes when he was first converted. But he says, he wrote it in very large letters, he said, with my own hand. So, so the Galatians, no, this is important. I couldn't find an amanuensis, somebody that, like a secretary to write for me, so I wrote this myself. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So they preach circumcision because they know if they talk too much about Jesus, they're going to find people's disfavor. Paul says, don't let that trouble you. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. The guys that are telling you that you have to keep the Mosaic law, they don't do it. He says, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Oh, look, we got these Gentiles that get cut, okay? But then note, here's what Paul says. This is his attitude in Galatians and Ephesians and every other epistle he wrote. He says, but God forbid, and I hope you can say this with him, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation, being born again. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul says, from now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You want to talk about your circumcision scar? 
I got scars all over me from following Jesus, being stoned, being whipped, being beaten. Paul says, don't let anybody, I'm not going to let anybody trouble me. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And then he concludes, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So let's be like Paul and say, oh, glory and nothing but the cross of Christ. And the love of my Savior is what took him to Calvary and which took me out of hell. And I'll praise his name both now and throughout eternity. That's what Paul's telling the Galatians. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Those that, that love Jesus who are trusting in him, we ought to receive them as our brothers and sisters. And we need to make sure that we're trusting in Christ fully and not relying on ceremonies or anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to be with us and bless us. We pray, Lord, you seal your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We ask you to work within us so that we would not glory in anything except your cross, that you love us and that you died for us and have washed us from our sins in your own precious blood. Lord, you're our Savior. We confess that we're unworthy of the least of your mercies. But, oh, Lord, we confess that you and you alone are worthy of all praise, worship, and adoration. We ask you to continue this work of grace in us. Lord, we pray, give us the grace of perseverance to trust you. Lord, we pray that though our grip upon you sometimes is pretty weak, we ask you to take hold of us, Lord, and never let us go. Uh, Lord, keep us in your love and grace. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that now in Christ Jesus, We've been reconciled to you, and so we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.